Hello, friends. My name's Tammy Simon, and I'm the founder of Sounds True, and I want to welcome you to the Sounds True podcast, Insights at the Edge. I also want to take a moment to introduce you to Sounds True's new membership community and digital platform. It's called Sounds True One. Sounds True One features original, premium, transformational docu-series, community events, classes to start your day and relax in the evening, special weekly live shows, including a video version of Insights at the Edge with an after-show community question and answer session with featured guests. I hope you'll come join us, explore, come have fun with us, and connect with others. You can learn more at join.soundstrue.com. I also want to take a moment and introduce you to the Sounds True Foundation, our nonprofit that creates equitable access to transformational tools and teachings. You can learn more at soundstruefoundation.org. And in advance, thank you for your support. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, my guest is Melissa Bernstein. Melissa Bernstein is an unusually sensitive, creatively gifted, and generative person who is a hugely accomplished entrepreneur. She is the entrepreneur in residence for Sounds True's Inner MBA program, which is a nine month online immersion program and begins each year in September. You can learn more at innermbaprogram.com. Back in 1988, with her husband, Doug, she founded the well-known toy company, Melissa and Doug, with the mission of engaging children's imagination. And together, Melissa and Doug grew the business to be north of a half billion in sales. As the chief creative officer over 30 years, get ready for this, Melissa conceived of more than 10,000 toys that's something like a new toy idea every day and a half for three decades. During this time, Melissa and Doug also raised a family of six children. And as Melissa recounts in a book that she published three years ago, she also during this time was confronting and eventually discovering how to work through intense inner darkness. She describes it as demons in her head. And she wrote a book about that journey. She calls it a journey from profound darkness to radiant light. It's called Lifelines. She's also started a new company now that's called Lifelines. And it's bringing to the public sensory immersion products that are evidence-based and can help people come into the present moment. Melissa Bernstein, welcome. That was so beautiful, Tammy. Thank you so much. I am so uh, awed of you and excited for this conversation. When I first encountered you and learned that you had been able to be such a successful entrepreneur, raise a family of six, and you had this own inner process happening, battling with what you came to describe as existential depression. I thought to myself, how is this possible? How can someone be so high functioning and yet have so much 
challenge happening inside at the same time. So let's start there. How's it possible? I think honestly, it was only possible because I was so good at repression and literally repressing all of it. And, and basically because, you know, when you are that dark and when you are that despairing and you let a little bit of it eke out, which I guess I did as a young child, all I remember was the look of horror in people's eyes when I showed a little bit of that despondency. And, and they would say things like, why are you talking like that? Why are you thinking like that? You're a child. Like, go out and play. Be be carefree. This is not the time to be thinking about mortality. And I got this message that, like, it wasn't okay to be that way. So still needing to be accepted, to belong, to matter. I basically knew that if I was going to be in this world, I needed to repress all of it. And I needed to anchor to two things that became my coping mechanism. One was pleasing, right? And being the good girl and doing everything that was expected of me. And the second was unfortunately perfectionism, which was trying to be utterly perfect and not show a chink in my armor and look like I was the perfect human that never showed anything other than everything's great. Like I'm cool. I got this. And what brought you, Melissa, to the point in your life where you decided, you know, I'm going to break this shell of perfectionism and come out and share what's really going on on the inside? You know what? It took me forever. And I really think that we don't share our truth until the pain of suffering becomes so great that we have no choice. And, you know, I hey, I thought I was, and I thought I was being authentic. Like it was the only self I knew, this, this self I created, which was this shiny self that never showed any emotion other than I'm great. But interestingly, I could do that through my 20s. I could do that through my 30s. But as I started entering my 40s, I guess I would say the cry of my soul to be seen authentically started to get louder and louder and louder. And I started to feel like almost like one of my toys, like this, this shiny, bright light toy that was on a shelf for everyone to see and was in the bright light, but actually underneath was kind of hiding the truth of who I was. And I just felt, started to feel very, very inauthentic. And it took me, after I started to hear sort of that cry of my soul, like, let me out. I want, you know, I want to come out, like stop hiding me under this facade. It still took me probably another five years to get the courage to really do it. And tell us a bit when it comes to journeying through the through part, like how you made it through, how you didn't start to share, see people's like, what, what's going on with Melissa? And kind of, you could have gone further uh, further deeply down criticizing, you know, when often when people are perfectionistic, then it's like, oh, now I'm exposing, you know, uh, these struggles that I'm having. How did you make it through? So I made these profound connections that actually showed me that what I had believed was such a curse was actually a blessing. And, and now I, I coined a word, which I call my, my blurs. And basically it was two things that happened. 
One was I read, reread actually, a book by this guy, Viktor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning, that talked about his experience, his horrific experience in like three concentration camps and the fact that he had to find a reason to live when he was stripped of every dignity. And that was the first time that I heard the words existential analysis. Because when he came out of the concentration camp, he founded a school called Logotherapy, which was a form of existential analysis. And read, when I read about existential um, despair and existential angst, I realized that, oh my gosh, that is what I had my whole life. I had never heard the word existential until I was about 48 years old. And I realized that I had this crisis of meaning my whole life, which had led me to these very dark thoughts. And that, when I started to research existential despair, I started to go down this whole rabbit hole of folks that happen to be very creative tend to have existential despair because they can ponder higher realities and they live in their imagination. And I started to see this connection, this profound connection between this ability to create and see things in my head, which I just thought was a nuisance and I thought was really um, actually a scourge, like I couldn't get these words and these notes and these products out of my head. But I started to see that actually it was kind of a, a, an, a result of this highly oversensitive central nervous system that led to all these dark thoughts. So I started to see a connection and that was kind of the pathway to meaning for me. All right, so let's, I'm gonna uh, really get in here a bit because this is really interesting to me, which is it seems like some people do seem to have an extra amount of existential despair or angst. And some of those people express it in generative creativity, but some don't, some don't. What do you make of that? Well, so so here's here's the meaning part of it that I've realized. So while I was creating, but the the beginning of my life for the first 20 years, I created incessantly, but the problem was I only created darkness from darkness. So everything I created was super dark, like like a lot of music in minor keys you know, verses that were really despairing and I was terrified to ever show anyone. And everything I created, I just squirreled away, never showed anyone. And because it didn't finish the circle of meaning, it was never able to touch someone, I didn't experience any sense of joy from it. And those were my worst 20 years. Those were the years that I I truly was, was in a very, very nihilistic, dark place. Honestly, I'm even shocked sometimes that I'm still here um, after those years. But the, the profound change, one of the profound dots of meaning in my life came when Doug and I decided to start a toy company. And we were really young. I, we were still dating. I was 22. He was 24. And we decided sort of one weekend we went away and we were like, we are so, you know, sort of uninspired by what we're doing in our lives. Like there's got to be more. And we decided that we love children and we wanted nothing more than to have the potential to, to change a child's life. So we decided to start a toy company. And one day we were brainstorming products and I start, started to see products in my head. And I realized that these weren't dark despairing products. 
Like these were actually light, bright toys. And it was this like, wait a second, I'm all darkness. I can only create darkness. Like how, how am I making light, bright toys out of such nihilistic, dark feelings? And I realized that my whole life, I had sort of had two faucets of creativity. I had a dark faucet and a light faucet. And I turned off the dark faucet. I'm sorry, I turned off the light faucet and I only had the dark faucet, like, like channeling all this darkness. But I realized that I could actually choose to now turn off that dark faucet, turn on the light faucet and take that very same despair that really like threatened to end me and channel it just as easily into beautiful toys that had the potential to unleash a child's imagination. So to answer your question, it's a choice. Ultimately, it is taking responsibility for making meaning. And that's really hard for people who have the demons in their head screaming so loudly. But in the end, I actually chose. I made the choice one day that I'm going to turn off this dark faucet and I am going to take that very same angst and just keep channeling into as many toys as I can humanly create. Okay, let's talk more about this metaphor of turning off the dark faucet. How do you do that? Because I imagine that still, I imagine, maybe I'm wrong, that there are times when you still hear a voice inside your head that's designed to punish you or make you feel bad or something or whatever, you know, whatever we might say like that, just say it's all futile. What's the point? You know, what do you do? What's the choice? Do you make a choice in that moment? Yes. So it's the battle between the head and the heart. And I talk about it all the time. So when I am stuck in the, with the demons, I can't seem to untether from my head because my head is a very, very dark place. Not my imagination part, but my my critical brain is is very, very, you know, dark. But my my spirit, my soul is pure creative liberation. And whenever I can go there, it's boundless possibility. And literally, I can create anything I imagine. And it is turning the ordinary into the most extraordinary. So what I have to do as a practice, and I've become really good at doing it because I love it so much, right? When I'm there, and it's crazy for someone who can go to the bowels of despair in an instant, I can just as instantly go to the peak of ecstasy in being in that boundless creative white space. So if I can live in that space and get there, then I can create whatever I want to. So it's really, it's really uh, untethering from those demons, that critical mind, and living in that beautiful, boundless flow of white space. So, is there a moment where you see, oh, this is the choice point. This is it. This is a choice point right here at you know whatever uh, you know time it might be during the day. I'm going to make a different choice. And tell me, how did you build that? capacity of awareness, first of all, to see the choice point, and then the muscle to make the choice? It really is a matter of intuition versus ego. So I think, you know, I started to feel a certain feeling. And it's like indescribable. It's a feeling when you know that something just feels right, and you see it so clearly, like 
when I see, you know, things, I see them finished. Like I could see a 24 line verse completely finished, or I can see a product completely finished. Like I can see it packaged on the shelf. Um, and it's like, I call it the angel singing. It's, it's indescribable. It's like a feeling of like, just, um, incredible exhilaration. And I think, you know, if I can allow my, my intuition to speak louder than the voices in my head and keep going back to that and saying, uh, uh, you're not gonna, and it's talking to, it's like, you're not gonna take me down today. I'm listening to that real voice of my spirit. So it's sort of the voice of my, my ego and the voice of my spirit, and they're fighting against each other. And the, the more I've, been able to rely on the voice of my intuition and my spirit, uh, the the more I've been set free from the the the, the voice. Now it's interesting because you're using this very archetypal language of of demons and angels. And I wonder, I wonder if you could say more about that. You know, when I was little, I just I called them demons because there was this voice in my head for many years that basically said, life is futile. End it, Melissa. You're going to do nothing of worth and nothing of meaning. You might as well just end it now. And that is the voice of, it's called nihilism. It's really where, it's the darkest place someone can go because you believe there's no meaning to existence and we as humans have no ability to make meaning in a meaningless existence. So the only thing I could, and I thought about it as just a demon trying to destroy me because the truth was my spirit didn't want to go anywhere. My spirit was asking the question why and kind of knew that there had to be a why. Like, why else would I be here if there wasn't a reason to be here? So I think uh, that was the way I termed it in all my writings, even from a tiny little girl. I used to call them the demons because they were, they were, and I saw it as this black, ugly force that was trying to like drag me down. Um, and then likewise, um, you know, I wrote a verse when I was five about, I hope an angel hears my plea. Um, so there was something, I don't know what it was about like being rescued by a, you know, a, a good force, right. That was fighting the, it was kind of like the good guys versus the bad guys and that who would win in the end. And I really, um, would write about the, that, that duality of good and evil and the battle and who would win in the end. And I didn't know. And, and, you know, in my disempowered days, I shouldn't say I didn't know in my disempowered days, I was positive that the darkness was going to take me down. So I want to talk to that person who's listening, who says, you know, I have felt this kind of I'll use strong language, but sort of war inside myself of, of some kind. I've felt that. Help me invest more in the angelic intuitive space. Come and create from that space. What have you learned about that, Melissa? So I would say the most powerful, uh, what do you call it, advice or, or piece of wisdom sure. my wise existential psychotherapist gave me that has changed my life is, you know, I think when we're in that dark place, we're very disempowered. We believe we are a victim of the darkness raging through us. And I think that victim mindset is very common in people who are despairing, right? They feel they are completely, and I used to almost go like this, like, take me, you know, take me darkness. I'd, I'd throw my arms out 
because I felt like I just had to resign myself to my fate. But the truth is, and one thing she said to me that maybe, again, is the most powerful thing I've, I've ever heard is darkness is not a force, Melissa. Darkness has no power. Darkness is only the absence of light. And we are all light. And all we have to do is shine our light and the darkness will disappear. And that changed my life to such an extent because what it did is it took my disempowered state and it said, you can choose, Melissa, whether to shine your light or not. And if you don't shine your light, then you're going to feel like the darkness might overtake you. But it's not because the darkness has any force. It's because you just chose to not shine your light. So I would say to folks, and I think the work of, you know, of healing uh, and practice, because this isn't like it happens, you don't just say, oh, I'm going to shine my light today. There goes, there you go, darkness. No, it's really then discovering what is my light? Like, how do I discover my light? And how do I, I shine that light so that I can banish the darkness? And that's what I try now, to do now every single day. You you decided that the next place after Melissa and Doug for your creative entrepreneurial expression to go was into this new company, Lifelines. Can you talk a little bit about how that's a light shining vision for you? Yes. Yeah, so the truth is, you know, both Melissa and Doug and Lifelines weren't even ever meant to be companies. Right. We were just shooting the breeze and talking about ideas. And both of them turned into a mission that is so powerful that it even transcends products. So with Lifelines, we had no intent to start another company because honestly, I mean, I could talk to you for hours about the travails of starting a business. And you would know, you know, right, firsthand. I mean, it is not for the faint of heart. And Doug and I always swore. We will never do this again. We would look at each other and we'd say, we're never doing this again, right? Right. So the fact we're doing it again is actually like we have lost our minds. But through the journey that I went on and, you know, my journey to become whole, like you see me today, you might be like, wow, she's so, you know, this has, has been the hardest thing of my life. And I had to go through, you know, many years of, sort of cognitive behavioral therapy and really going deep and, and realizing that I am not just one emotion, which is like, I'm great. I'm a full spectrum of emotions and I have to accept that full spectrum and, and really like show it to my authentic self to the world. And that's what I had never done. So in the act of doing that and finally accepting myself as the highest of highs to that abyss of nihilism at the bottom, I realized that I needed something. Like now that I was accepting my full spectrum, like I could either go really high into that boundless expanse of white space and never come back because any creative who's listening will know, and probably you too, that when you're like in that white space, like I never wanna come down. Like I don't wanna sleep, I don't wanna, cause I'm just like creating and it's blissful. Likewise, when I'm in a low, because I usually go very high and low, like 
I might never come back up. Like I get really dark very quickly. So I was like, what am I going to do? How am I going to be here in the world in, in, you know, earth school and like have no tethering. So I created this practice for myself. It literally wasn't meant for anyone else. It was meant for myself so that I could figure out how to be here every day and like, you know, be, be all I can be and, and, and help humanity in any way I can. Um, and that really turned into lifelines and it turned into this idea because I started to think like, I need tools in my toolbox to help me. And like, I'm using one right now. This is one of our products. Um, so let's see, I, let's know, see that. I was nervous about today. Like, I mean, I'm talking to Tammy Simon on her podcast and I was like, I need something to hold because I am a nervous person. So um, this is one of our tools. So basically I created uh, an ideology, a methodology. And then out of that became this idea that I'm gonna create products and tools to really support people in their practice of being their kind of their, their whole self. Can you describe what you're holding in your hand, what it is and what it does? Yes. So I love to hold things. I need to, I shouldn't say I love, I need to hold things because if I don't, and this is what grounds me. So before we started, when you we were giving your beautiful preamble and I was like, you can't be talking about me. Um, I was like, I better ground myself or this is not going to go well. I'm going to, you know, just lose it. So I literally um, took this grounding stone. So I created I love to hold stones, but they're they were missing a lot of the um the, a lot of the features that I love the most. So this it opens up and you can put your favorite um and we we've created your favorite essential oil on the stone. So this smells intoxicatingly beautiful. It has my favorite citrus calm blend. So I put a calm blend on it because it's like I got a calm. Um, and then it closes and then it has this amazing fidget. It's actually ball bearings, but I can massage my palm as I'm talking to you. Um, and it has all these textures on the bottom too. So it fits right in the palm of my hand. Nobody sees it and I can bring it with me everywhere. And it, when I, and I associate it now, it's part of my practice that when I hold this and when I smell my citrus calm blend, I know I'm safe. And it basically signals um, my sympathetic nervous system that you can get out of fight or flight now. It's okay. Tammy's not going to hurt you. Um, it's going to be a, a, a good conversation and I can go into my, my rest and restore and uh, parasympathetic nervous system. So we have about seems, 30 products right now. This is just one of them. Yeah. I mean, and uh, what good timing, Melissa, at a time when people are so desperately wanting to manage their nervous system in our world today, that you would uh, come out with a product line called Lifelines. I mean, what a gift you have for tuning in to what the collective needs, as you did with Melissa and Doug, when we needed toys that we could engage with, that would evoke our imagination and not just like sort of do something for us. So what's interesting to me is within the inner MBA program, where you're now the entrepreneur in residence, a lot of people have grand missions. They want to do something like be helpful to people who uh, perhaps feel a lot of intense inner pressure, but they're not able the way you have here to 
bring it down into a product line creation that's going to match the needs of the marketplace and create a thriving business. And I'm curious to know more if you're to fill in some of those pieces from going to, you called it this creative white space, this big inspired idea to getting it to hit the ground and hit the target, hit the bullseye in your case, and what you know about how to do that. Yeah, I mean, that's where the rubber meets the road. And that's what I enjoy doing so much. And um, I've mentored young entrepreneurs. Doug and I have an entrepreneurs program. Uh, and that it's so much fun because I think you get a lot of people who say, I want to be an entrepreneur, right? And that's their goal. And I guess when that's your goal, you're, you're in big trouble, right? Because I think it's it's it has to start with the curiosity and the insight and I think too grandiose a mission, you, you can't even necessarily break it down. So how I start is, you know, the if you want to be entrepreneurial, then start with curiosity and start by looking at the way things are and not seeing them as they are, but see them with all the potential of what they can be. So start really thinking about a problem that you see that you want to solve. And I think one of the the cool things about entrepreneurs and the entrepreneurial mindset, which, which is, has to precede the idea, is you have to be really open and curious. And entrepreneur, because if you're an entrepreneur once and you really have the mindset, like you'll be an entrepreneur a thousand times. And Doug and I, there isn't anything we look at that we don't think we could better and improve because that's the mindset, right? The mindset is just, huh, why is it that way? Like, why can't it be different? So I always say, start there. And if you're not someone who is seeing that and you can't actually take something more lofty than I want to save humanity or I want to help people and bring it down to like, here's the problem. Uh, I think then I would say, just keep being open and maybe work for a startup. You don't have to be the entrepreneur yourself. Get yourself into an entrepreneurial environment and keep collecting, I call them dots of experience. Because the truth is, there's no such thing as serendipity, I don't think. I think serendipity is actually the result of having so many dots of life experience that, and you don't even know why, right? You sort of, have an experience and you're like, oh, that's really cool. And you store it away um, in your, you know, I, I call my brain like the largest kitchen in the world. And there are all these pots on burners and you put that in a, a pot on the back burner and then you collect more dots. And it's all over disparate realms that you collect these beautiful dots of experience. And then one day you collect that final dot and you don't even know what it is, but suddenly you're like, oh my gosh. And that's when for me, the angels sing. Suddenly it's like, wait a second. If I pull that pot from the back burner and I mix it with the one on the front burner and I mix this one over on the left, suddenly, oh my gosh, that's it. And it's never what you think. It's always combining weird amalgamations of ideas and suddenly you've got it. And I think, you know, it's that mindset that has to precede the idea. How do you know when a dot is worth putting into a pot, even if it's on a back burner or side burner or all the, like, how do you know, like, oh, that's, that's, because we have so many experiences in, in our lives. We can't maintain all of them in, in little pots on the stove. I mean, we have to choose which ones. How do you know? 
I mean, I personally have have learned to, it's all about that intuition. You can't know. So the answer is you never know. And there's never a right answer. However, there is a decision and there is a fork in the road at every single juncture and a decision to be made. And I think if you become good at listening to those inner whispers, right, uh, that tell you, I, I feel I feel good about this one. I have that weird like goosebumps and you and you heat it. All you can do then is heat it and get to the next fork in the road and make a new decision. And I think that's, you know, Doug and I, our philosophy is really um, keep moving. Even if you move backward, like just keep moving. And if it's not the right move, you'll make another move you know, and then you'll you'll correct that move and you'll just keep moving. And I think if you get too caught up in, is this the right decision? Is this what I should do? There's no right decision. And there's nothing you can do other than become really good at heeding uh, that intuition and learning when it's it's giving you those those feelings that this is pretty good. But but know that, you know, I I think someone someone once did this study of my my creations and they 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 found that i was only successful like 35% of the time so the truth is and i heeded my intuition every single time so know that even if you heed your intuition and you create you know a large thousand person company uh still you might be wrong two thirds of the time and that's perfectly like awesome let me ask you a question about heeding your intuition what about when your intuition is like, I'm 85% there, I'm 90% there, I'm 95, but there's still like a little voice in me that's saying, are you really sure you want to do this? This could be, you know, Melissa said, keep moving. Okay, I'm going to keep moving. But I still have this little strand that says, you know, this could be like a serious mistake that you're going to have to walk back in the future. Do you, I mean, we can't wait till we're 100%, can we, to oh, keep moving? Never. I have the 80% rule. I 80%. Like okay. If you're 80%, you 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 go for it because if you don't have that that question, then that means you're not doing anything new and indifferent. You have to be questioning it. If you if you're 100%, then it's not it's not probably not that innovative and and revolutionary and that much of a risk. So, if you don't think every single thing that Doug and I have done we're like, "Oh my gosh, I don't know if this is still today." I mean, every decision we make we're like i don't know if it's going to be right or not um and isn't that again isn't that the fun of life you know as long as you know and you start to get more confident and and that's what i can tell you having done this now for 35 years like has is every decision we make right not at all i i don't even know if half of them are right to be honest with you but we're so good about then making the next decision and retrenching and regrouping if we get it wrong and and not stopping and knowing that it's okay. Like we are going to make continual mistakes if we're doing new things that have never been done. Like we're going to get it wrong a lot, but it doesn't mean, and that's the other thing. Like we, we think in our society, it's so black or white, right? You either get it right or you get it wrong. It's a right decision or a wrong. It's not like that at all. Usually it's somewhere in the middle, right? Like it maybe wasn't like perfect, but you got close to there. So if you make this little tweak, you can get it over the edge. Now you said, isn't that the fun of it? And I immediately thought, no, that's actually the hell of it. 
because you you do these things and there's some part of it that doesn't work out and you lose a bunch of money on this or you have to backtrack and correct something here or you know even even uh uh somebody could end up feeling hurt by how things went and there's repair that's required and in, in how it went and you mentioned that for the longest time in your life you coped by being a perfectionist so i'm curious how you got over that in terms of taking all these risks and dealing with the feedback of things not always being perfect it's the best question and i will tell you how because unfortunately, you cannot know the success of a product until it gets into the hands of consumers. No matter what type of market research you do or like studies ahead of time or consultants, you got to get it out there. And my need to create products that impacted people was so great that I had a choice. Either I never put a product on a shelf and, and, and say my track record's perfect or I actually take the risk and put them on shelves knowing that they might fail, but they also might succeed and that I'm going to touch a lot of people. So ultimately my need to get the products out there and channel this inner chaos into um, something hopefully impactful was greater than my fear of rejection. And uh, and I, I learned something profound. For a perfectionist, there's nothing harder than being a product inventor because um, there's nothing more punishing and it's immediate and people are not, you know, kind. They're not like, oh, I love this, but they're like, I'm not buying your product because it doesn't resonate with me. So consumers are brutal, uh, but it, it cured me of my perfectionism. And it also made me see again, the rigidity uh, and prison that perfectionists put themselves in. And the reason I said that's the fun is because perfectionism is the least fun, right? When you can't even take a risk because you're so terrified of getting a 99 instead of a hundred, I mean, that's in effect, you're shackled, right? You're shackled to like, like homeostasis. You're going nowhere. But when you can have the courage to say, I'm going to try something that's never been attempted and I might fall flat on my face, but then again, I might get this, like incredible success to me, it is pure adrenaline. And I'm willing now again to risk the failure to have that intoxicating feeling that nothing, honestly, I don't need to jump out of planes. I don't do any risks with my body because when I put a product out there, it's akin to jumping out of an airplane, right? Not knowing if your parachute's gonna, gonna save you or not. How did you develop the capacity to be reasonable, gentle to yourself when the market said thumb, double thumbs down, Melissa? It's an amazing question. And at the beginning, I was not compassionate to myself. I was that inner critic because, again, the perfectionism was like, what is wrong with you? You should have known better. Why did you put that product out? I mean, oh, and, and of course, hindsight, right? I would be like, well, of course it wasn't going to sell. Look at the packaging or look at the price point. But then what happened again? because I have such a need to channel the darkness, I started to look at what I deemed failures uh, with a critical eye and really see that most of the time, it wasn't like that black or white. Most of the time when something failed, there was actually 
something that I could do to that exact same product to turn it into a complete winner. And I, I can give you an example. Sure. Or other times it wasn't even about the product itself. It was about the timing of society. So like in 2006, we introduced a salad set and it was like a, a cutting food set with lettuce and all the vegetables in a salad bowl. And we brought it to our biggest trade show and like nobody ordered it. Literally, I think we got out of it maybe with 12, or 12, 12 pieces ordered. Um, so I would put things, I had this wall of shame. I called it with all my favorite failures behind my desk and I, I put it back there and there it sat for literally 10 years because I was like, I like salads. Maybe no one else does. And the truth was at, in 2006, people were not eating salads. It was like not, but 10 years later in 2016, suddenly there was like a salad craze. All these salad chains started opening up and I looked at my back shelf. And all my 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 forgotten toys, they keep like calling to me. This one was like, Melissa, come on, it's time, it's time. So I re resurrected it and I added some organic kale and spinach and, you know, cool little croutons. And it became that year one of our top 50 products. So in that particular case, it wasn't a failure of product. It was a failure in too early before it's time. And one of the cool things about doing toys for over 30 years is I actually got to see that over three decades, sometimes it wasn't a failure per se, it was the wrong timing or a little subtle price issue or a packaging issue or something that could so easily be changed to turn a failure into a resounding success. Now, you mentioned that if you feel 80% confident or higher, you'll move forward. And I thought to myself, God, you know, I bet Melissa's life is moving pretty fast. I bet she has the feeling, like an inner feeling of things progressing swiftly. And I say that because I think of all the times I've pulled the emergency brake on various things because I wasn't at something more like 95% or something. So I'm curious, is that true? Do you have the feeling of your life moving quickly? Like I, change and, and, and forwardness or not? I'm curious. I do, because I think, you know, one of my um, overexcitabilities because of this heightened sensitivity is called psychomotor. And it is a heightened arousal that makes me kind of constantly need to keep doing. And I worried about that a lot because being a spiritual person, you know, I've been into like, I got to get to the point where I can just be, and I don't need this fervent creative, you know, force all the time and need to create more, 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 which is kind of my, my mode. And again, my wise existential psychotherapist, who's 20 years, my senior. So she's, she's seen a lot of life. Uh, you know, I was, I was explaining this to her and she said to me, Melissa, I don't know where you got that. Like you will end your life before you will be sitting on a mountaintop just being. And she said, creating is your form of being, Melissa. And I demand that you continue to create. So I love that advice. And, and the thing I will say that that is a little bit of a qualification on that, if I'm tethered to the result of the creations, then it becomes very egoic. But I'm not anymore, believe it or not. I've I've evolved to the point where I just get such joy in again in channeling chaos into tangible form uh, that 
I don't really even care that much if it touches others. Like I just need to do it to be here. No, you mentioned that from a very young age, you had these questions of meaning. What's the meaning of our life? And here you're describing this creativity and the flow of creativity as your total joy place for, is that, is that in and of itself meaningful enough for you? Does that deliver on meaning? It's part of it. So I, I've been such a student of meaning and, and helping myself derive meaning and then using that to help others derive meaning that I now call it, it's my own word, I call it a pie of meaning. And it can't be just one, one thing, because if you only, if your pie is only one flavor and God forbid that something happens to that one flavor, like your pie is empty. And that's really, uh, you know, that's very dangerous. So I feel like your pie needs as many slices of different flavors of pie as possible. So yes, as a creative being, one of my real areas of meaning is not just creating, it has to be creating that can actually be put into the hands of someone else and impact their lives. Because I'm also a crafter and I make ear, I like, I, I am a creative, but if when I just make it for the sake of making it, it doesn't give, it's, it's joyful, but it doesn't bring me meaning. So it has to touch others. And then there's a whole other, whole bunch of other things in my pie. Tell me. Gosh. Okay. Um, so when I was in my stoic years, I really didn't have any real friendships um, because I never showed any vulnerability uh, myself. I was like, I was very like, I'm perfect, but you can share your issues with me. Um, so I never had any deep friendships ever. And I literally didn't start to develop real friendships until about 10 years ago, which is crazy. I literally could say, I mean, Doug obviously is my best friend, but in terms of outside, you know, friends, like female friends, none of them. So now that I finally showed some vulnerability, I've developed these amazing friendships. Like, like they're so important to me. And I realized that friendship like you is give and take, and you have to take time for a friendship, which I never understood. So now friendships are a really important part of, um, of my life. Um, nature and music and, you know, sort of experiencing all the extraordinary in the ordinary of daily living is really important to really allow myself to appreciate like how lucky I am, which is hard. When you have a nihilistic streak, it's hard to appreciate. So I think that, and then my family, oh my gosh, like, you know, I have six children. I have Doug. Um, I have like an extraordinary, I'm so you know, blessed for that. And I want to have a really good relationship with them, which takes time. So, so a few things. And I just want to make sure I understand this whole concept of the pie of meaning. Do you feel it's for each one of us to fill it in and say what our slices are or what we need to create our pie? That's a that's the work each one of us has to do. Yeah, my contention is if you do not have meaning in your life, you will by definition fall into a state of dis despair. And, and it's called an existential vacuum. You will be in that place where you're like, just you're, you're apathetic. You just fall into that um, apathy. And usually when I start to understand a person's story, it's because they aren't doing anything that is giving their life meaning. 
And I get it. I mean, when and also it's a it's a catch 22, right? When you're in that dark state, you're power, you feel powerless to 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 do anything. And I was there like I was 100 percent there. So which is why that this this whole uh, meaning has, you know, changed my life to such an extent that I'm now like I feel obligated to help so many others find it themselves, too. When you work with young entrepreneurs, Melissa, whether it's in the inner MBA program or Duke University, and you're listening to them share their ideas for their product and they're sharing where they're at. When do you have the thought, oh, this person's going to make it like they got it when and you're other times you're thinking, I don't really know, no matter what I say, I'm not really sure. Like what's going on inside you? It's an amazing question. And I laugh because we we always would do that exercise. We'd be like, going to make it, not going to make it, going to make it, not going to make it. You know, the number one reason these businesses fail is lack of focus. So I can tell right away by how focused someone is on, and, and we say create a product that people are clamoring to purchase, you know, a product or a service. And you need to be so passionate about your product that nothing else matters. And I always know when they're focused on their social media or their logo or who they're going to hire or the partnerships that they they don't have a chance because, you know, it's, it's all about the product. And if your product isn't like solving a problem and it isn't something, I mean, I think of that product as so sacred because you are going to ask someone who's worked so hard to open their wallet and actually pay you for something like that is a pretty major, you know, uh, act. And you're going to have to be offering them something pretty special for them to want to like, I'm getting nervous now saying this with our new products coming out, but like for them to want to do that, it's a, it's a big, you know, it's a, it's a big uh, concession on their part. So you're going to have to be giving them something really special. The first time I spoke to you and you shared this saying that you have, it's all about the product, damn it. Uh, but it's all about the product, you know, and I, inside I was like, yeah, I believe that. I 100% believe that. That's true. You know, and I went back to various members of our team who were wanting to talk about all these other things. And I was like, it's all about the product. Melissa Bernstein said, it's all about the product. And, you know, I got this pushback like Tammy, the people matter, the marketing plan matters, all of these other things matter. Stop saying it's all about the product. And I'm like, no, I'm I'm with Melissa on this. But what would you say, so I can say it back to the people I work with, to the naysayers who say it's about all these other things too, the cash flow, et cetera? If you have an extraordinary product, everything else is just icing. So sure, once you have your product in hand and it's like, oh my gosh, like, you know, consumers are waiting there with their arms outstretched and wallets open, like, give me your product. Sure, then everything else can be the juice, you know, to to uh, to light it into a bonfire. But the truth is, without an extraordinary product, none of that other stuff matters. So I think it's just the order in which you do it. And I think until you have that product and it's really perfect, it's shocking how many imperfect products are on the market. Like we are always just flabbergasted. Like how could they have put that out? Like it. It, I'm a regular user using it because we're, you know, user experience is probably the thing I'm most passionate about. Like, 
the product has to be intuitive. It has to function in a way that's effortless. It has to be, you know, like we we have, I have a whole, um, I call it our, our PEP, our product essence principles, because PEP is vitality. So I have a whole uh, product essence principles manifesto. That's all the things that are essential to a, you know, extraordinary product. And I think it's shocking how many companies, if you went down those, those peps, um, don't even, you know, like attain any of those. One of the core theses, if you will, of the inner MBA is that when we develop ourselves, when we commit to growing on the inside, we have the possibility of creating more extraordinary results in our business life. And I'm wondering how you see that. What kind of inner growth do you think really matters to a founder, entrepreneur, business person? I mean, it all comes back. It's exactly what you're saying because it's all about your intuition. And I truly believe that every good idea comes from this beautiful intuition and connecting again those dots of life experience and like a trail of breadcrumbs ultimately they will take you to these epiphanies that really are your like brilliant revolutionary ideas so the more we can quiet the clamor of the outside world because again today too many people derive their values from society's values and i think we don't you know wouldn't it be wonderful if we had a values recognition class like before we got out of school, but we never talk about like, what are my personal values? Like what's important to me? And we think what's important to me is what our families told us should be important to us or what society told us. So I think the quieter we can get and the more we can learn to trust our personal values and intuition, the more that will lead us to really having a mission for our business that um, is something that you can be as passionate about today as you were, you know, for me, I'm as passionate about open-ended play today as I was 35 years ago. Um, and that's pretty cool. That's a, that's a mission that has transcended even 35 years of my life. Now, Melissa, you mentioned early on in our conversation that for you, you can see a full product in your mind's eye. You see the whole thing. You can see a 24-verse uh, uh, written piece of poetry. You see it all flowing through you. Now, for a lot of people, they don't have that kind of inner sight. So they might say, you know, look, I spent some time quieting my mind. It's not that interesting in there. I'm not getting brilliant intuitions uh, related to product creation. What would you say to someone who wants to have more intuition that they can act upon? I mean, I think it's all about like some people have it easier than others. So, you know, there, there are a couple different answers, but if you want to just really, I'd say, become more honed at listening to your intuition, just become quieter. And at the beginning, by the way, you won't hear a thing. You, if you've been externally focused, you are going to be like crickets in there, like nothing's happening. But all I say is be patient, give it time, allow yourself to experience life. Like, just get in the mode of turning off the clamor. And, and when you experience something, think about, wow, what was amazing about that? Start to ask yourself questions that really start to connect 
to who you are and what you value. And there are lots of value exercises you can engage in. You know, you can start to ask yourself questions like, when am I the happiest? When do I feel, you know, really in my flow state, right? What did I enjoy doing most as a child? What did I want to be when I grew up when I was a child? Like you can start to ask these questions to hone in on kind of who you are. And I think the more you're able to sit with who you really are and not listen to what who other people tell you you should be or want you to be, the more you'll start to hear it. And I truly believe that the best ideas, like all my product ideas come when I'm not thinking about it. Um, it's really not about having an objective of having a good idea, because that's the very antithesis of having a good idea. It's really just about being open to curiosity and possibility when they just hit you. They, they really is always the case with me. And the last thing, Melissa, I wanted to ask you about is this notion of extending lifelines to each other. And I say that because you've been so generous with students in the inner MBA. I've seen you reach out all over the place to people who are asking for your business advice. And it seems like we do each have this opportunity to be a lifeline for each other. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are about that. So, you know, I had a personal epiphany just a couple years ago that I didn't need to change the world like thousands of people at a time. It was about making one person at a time feel seen, heard, and that they matter. And for some reason, it was almost like when, when the voice said to you, you know, um, to, to start sounds true, it was almost like that voice. It said, stop focusing on like masses of people and just focus on one person at a time. And there's something about the sacred trust someone gives you when you have a Zoom with them, when someone from Inner MBA reaches out to me and I say, let's get on a, a Zoom call. And I see them for the first time and we don't, we've never seen each other. We don't know each other. And they share this really like deep part of themselves. Like there's something so precious about that. And, and I feel that I'm given such a gift because if I can say one little thing that even maybe not today, maybe it's planting the seed for a year from now, but that maybe gets them to change even slightly the way they're thinking or the tra trajectory of their lives, then how many lives will they change? So it's really about the, I've really become about the little ripple and, um, and there's nothing I find that gives me more meaning. I, I don't know what it is. It's something really powerful about the one at a time. You've been listening to Melissa Bernstein. She's the author of the book, Lifelines, as well as the creator of a new company called Lifelines. With Sounds True, she's the entrepreneur in residence at our Inner MBA program. It's a nine month online immersion program produced in partnership with LinkedIn and Wisdom 2.0, and it begins in September of each year. You can learn more at innermbaprogram.com. And you can reach out directly to Melissa if you're interested. You can reach her at melissa at lifelines.com. And if you'd like to watch Insights at the Edge on video and participate in after the show Q&A conversations with featured presenters, and have the chance to ask your questions, come join us on Sounds True One, 
a new membership community that features premium shows, live classes, and community events. Let's learn and grow together. Come join us at join.soundstrue.com. Sounds true. Waking up the world.